You're listening to the Thoroughbred Post on the Equisport Radio Network. Brought to you by Bally Rose Farm, Dunhill Real Estate and Racetrack Supply. Today's guest are Ken McPeak, trainer of the Eclipse award-winning Swiss skydiver, the exceptional jockey Marion Alligard, and Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation's Kim Ware. And now from Bally Rose Farm join our host Les Saltzman on the Thoroughbred Post. They are nose to nose as they arrive at the final furlong. Swiss skydiver digs in at the rail. Authentic on the outside. These two putting on a show. The Derby winner in the Philly. Swiss skydiver inside. Authentic outside. They're nose to nose. All the way to the wire. And it is going to be a photo finish. Was it the Philly? Swiss skydiver. I think she did it. Authentic was with her on the wire in the Preakness Stakes. The final time was one fifty-three and one. Kenny, that gives me chills every time I listen to that race. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing trip. It was, it was the whole uh, the whole year, but um, yeah, it's still fun to listen to. Yeah, you know, you d- you did obviously a marvelous job. Uh, you won the Eclipse Award w- with the filly uh, in what was not a traditional campaign. Yeah, the calendar kept changing all year long. We um, we were literally calling audibles at the line of scrimmage because at one point there were no there were no three year old Philly stakes scheduled because of the pandemic, and we actually even milled around with taking her to Europe and running her in the two thousand or the thousand guineas in Newmarket because there was no American racing. And um, then they popped up a couple of more, and, they, and then the schedule started falling in place and. It actually fell in pretty good. And the only reason I ran her in the Preakness, and it was going through my mind when you all were playing the uh, replay there, is the only reason that she ran the Preakness is because there were no three-year-old Philly stake races that fit her timing. And I had told the owner earlier in the year, I said, I think we need to nominate her for, for the Triple Crown because the timing, and there's no three-year-old Philly races that time. So why not if she's, if she's doing well, let's see. And um, lo and behold, it worked out. Tell me a little bit about her because she you you purchased her out of the sale. Uh, you must have seen something very, very special about her uh, because you immediately started a campaign like she was a good horse. Well, um, yeah, so I do, I do a lot of yearling work. Um, I've been working yearling auctions pretty much all my career and I love finding horses at auction. I think it's a bigger challenge than training horses is, is going to the sales and, and being able to, I guess you could say, harvest the best group you can put together. And I don't always have a huge budget because I've some to some ex- extent spoiled some customers of mine. And, you know, I bought Curlin for 57 and I've had some other horses that were modestly priced. Take Charge Lady was 175 and I thought that was a huge amount back in 2000 when I bought her, but you know, um, and then back to Swiss, it's a, um, it was, um, it wasn't something that we expected. You know, she, she ran her first race last, uh, uh, the fall of her two year old year. And she won first time out, which most good horses can and will do. And then the second time out, she was actually beaten in an allowance race. I'm not sure if it was a greatest ride, but for whatever reason she was second. And then, and she actually had a what I'd call a subpar race at Tampa, and um, she had a horrible trip. She ended up like nine wide on the turn, and only gets beat a length. 
But if you had asked me right then and there, um, would she be champion three-year-old Philly? I would have said, no, this is just a nice, solid Philly. But and she certainly got talent, but champion? No, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have uh, tooted that horn at all. What, what changed your mind? Um, you know, she just seemed to get stronger as the year went. And she's an exceptionally good eater. I mean, this filly, uh, she's had the same night watchman pretty much all year plus, And he keeps a real close eye on her in the evening. And he said that she just absolutely kills the B-tub. And um, when horses are eating like that, it's a um, it's a... It's a lot easier on horse trainers when we don't have to worry about whether or not a horse gets knocked out of the tub from a, from a trip or a race or a workout. And uh, the stress of it all, it will wilt a horse. And um, she just got stronger as the year went. It was amazing. Now, a friend of mine described her as robust. I mean, and that, that's really a good, good description of her. She just is a robust type of filly. Yeah, she's very thick. Um, she she almost looks like I'm not going to say a quarter horse, but but she is. She's got a huge um, chest and depth of uh, her girth and her hip and her hindquarters is just massive. And she's not um, she's not your typical long, lean thoroughbred. She's more of a bull, and um, and I and I do think that attributes to her eating habits because she does <laughs> not miss she does not miss a meal. She is, her, is she easy to train? Piece of cake. Um, she's got a she she likes routine. She likes to go out first. She likes to wait. She's got um she's got actually a little odd jig jog when she jogs, which actually drove the state veterinarians crazy because she doesn't like to straight jog like a you know a, maybe a trotter or so. She she likes to kind of hack when she goes backwards and. And when you turn around and gallop her, she gallops perfect. But she um, she's always done that, and we'd always we'd have to explain this. They that's so the way she wants to go. Would make her happy. What difference does it make? And oh, we we want her to drop to jog off in perfect diagonal, you know? And I'm, no, well, I don't know what to tell you. But anyway, watch her gallop and watch her work and watch her run, and you won't be worried. So, N- not to get political, but you know. This is becoming more and more of a problem in the morning for trainers or when the state vets come around where they've got a kind of preconceived concept of what a sound horse looks like. Uh, Do you agree with that? or? Yeah, and the problem I have with it is is that a lot of times they're hiring very young veterinarians that really have never had the experience dealing with campaign-type horses, and they they really – you know – they're, they're really scrupulous about this because it's their job to make sure that horses don't break down. And I understand that, but it's a, um, it's a very gray area. And many times there are horses that don't move perfectly that, that should, um, and can run and run well. But, um, it's definitely a new era of dealing with things like that. And you're, uh, you're under the spotlight to some extent. And, it's not unusual in Kentucky right now. They're scratching three a day, which only one, a little more than one in a thousand horses breaks down in a race. Right. So to scratch three on a hundred hundred horse card is overkill. They really poor word for this, but 
it, they're really doing too too many scratches. You don't scratch three in a hundred when there's only one in a thousand that actually break down. And the truth is, is that a lot of jockeys are really good at feeling a horse. Look, if a horse doesn't feel right, then I don't want them to persevere. And um, sometimes it's just one bad step, and it's the most devastating thing when, when we have it happen. But it is part of the game, not that we need to accept it, but it is really difficult. No, I think it's very, very difficult. And as you said, sometimes it's just one bad step. They could be sound as a dollar walking over there, and they take a bad step, and you know, there's no way to forecast that sometimes. Uh, I think also, and I don't mean to go in – off the track here, but you know, between that and the Lasix rules, now I'm afraid we're going to have some shortages in the summertime. You know what? I'm not a fan of Lasix. Um, you know, I've I know. started 11,000 11, horses in my career, and I can only give you one horse in, in my 35 years of training that actually bled through the nostril, you know, coming back from a race. That's one in 11,000. Um, and, and this notion that horses are going to die on the racetrack if they don't get Lasix is ludicrous. It's not going to happen. No, I agree with you um, there. Yeah, ho- horses more likely to rupture an aorta. Um, there, there's, there's some a whole list of reasons a horse could die on the racetrack. Uh, heart attacks, um, things like that. That that's more dangerous than than I think bleeding and Lasix is is not a cure for that in my opinion. Actually, I think it dehydrates a lot of the thoroughbreds in a negative way, and then it takes longer for them to replenish the fluids back from the dehydration, and then subsequently owners don't get to run them as more often. And, and owners and trainers, you need to run your horses when they're right. I think there was a there was a period in, in horse racing history where horses ran every week. And today we're lucky if we run them once a month. Right. I know I was looking at some old charts uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was looking at old stake horses. And, you know, you had horses that were running, you know, 15, 18, 20 times a, a year at graded level. And you know, and things have changed. Obviously, it's a different world. Uh, let's let's get off the real serious, serious stuff, uh, because I I know you you are a hardworking guy. Whenever I call you, you're you're on the run somewhere, except except when it's UK basketball time. <laughs> now you 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 grew up in Arkansas, right? Am I correct? No, I didn't. No, no. Uh, where were you? I was born in Arkansas because my father was in the 101st Airborne, and my mother went to visit him for a weekend. Oh, okay. And she she said that the roads were so damn bad that she gave birth to me by the time she got to, to the Army base, Fort Chaffee Army base in Arkansas. Right. And she was there three days and brought me home, and I've still never forgiven her. <laughs> so you, you got the Arkansas bread tag next to you, but wh- where did you grow up? They claimed me in Arkansas, but I was only there for seventy-two hours, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I came right back to Kentucky where I started. My, you know, my pa- parents um, were both Lexingtonians. Um, went to high school together, and I was 
they were married in Lexington, and I was conceived in Lexington, and I grew up in Lexington, but I am an Arkansas foal. Um, so, but that, that's okay. Okay, so, so t- tell me about growing up. How did you get involved with the horses and get it? You know, so, um, you're I'm an interesting guy because you're in both business. You're both a businessman and a great trainer. So tell me a little bit about it. Okay, so when I was a kid, my grandparents would argue over who I went to church with on Sundays. And my grandmother on my dad's side decided that if she brought ponies to the house after church, I would go to church with her. She was smart. (laughs) (laughs) So she would have Sunday brunch. We would ride all afternoon. And then my grandfather on my mom's side figured out that he could take me to the races on Saturday. So we would go to Keeneland on Saturday, and then Sunday we'd go to my grandmother's. And so I had the best of both worlds. I learned how to read a pedigree before I was probably 10 or 11. I could read the racing form by 10 or 11. Um, And I got, I I was one of those kids that just really got interested in why is a horse bred this way, or who's, you know, who's Northern Dancer, and who is, what's, um, what, what kind of marriage secretariat out of, and is um, Deputy Minister a good sire on the top or the bottom? I mean, I just thought all that stuff was really neat stuff. And um, so by the time I was 16, I got a I got a job on a horse farm as a kid that they attached me to a weed eater and I'd bring in mares and foals. And then my mother, who was um, probably most influential person in my life, like most people's mother, but she um, said, you are going to go to college and you are going to finish. So I went to UK and got a degree in business finance investments and also got a degree in accounting. And um, that and 50 cents would get me a cup of coffee somewhere, I suppose. I never utilized either one of them other than, other than you know, I certainly used to do my own taxes and certainly can reconcile a bank statement and things like that, which are important. Um, but it's a, um, my passion was horses and, um, I finished my last class at UK had, um, a really great group of roommates that I was sharing an apartment with. And then we had a all day, all night party that night. And next morning I looked at my roommate and said, wow, I got to get a job. And he says, well, what do you love? And I said, oh, that's easy. I love horse racing. And I went from sitting on a sofa with him with a, beer can in my hand to Keeneland an hour later and I've been doing it ever since and loving it because every time I talk to you you're so passionate about it it's a great game you know I think it's so misunderstood I think people need to know more about it and I don't think the industry does a very good job um, getting out there and connecting to the masses which is another project that I've taken on and we've got um We've got a lot of work to do. You know, uh, horse racing only control or only handles about 1% of the population follows horse racing, where is in Australia and Europe, it's closer to 20 or 25%. So American racing is doing a lot wrong, in my opinion, in that, in that area. And, um, I'd like to stick my head in the middle of that, that, uh, issue myself. And I've tried, but, um, not many people know that much about it. And it's unfortunate. You know, it's it's interesting. We had uh, Mark Webster from English on uh, about a year or so ago, and he was talking about the popularity of the sport there. And actually, according to Mark, 
one out of every five Australians own a piece of a racehorse, which is an amazing, an amazing thing. You know, can you imagine if we, if we could do that here? I mean, it would be complete game changer, property values, stallion values, value of horses. It would completely change the dynamic of the whole industry, but the, the, um, and I have have feelings on why it's that way. Australia opens their content. You can watch a race anywhere at any time with few barriers, and, and uh, we don't do that here. You know, that's that's very true. Uh, matter of fact, last night I was watching the sales from there on YouTube. But you, you've actually kind of reached out uh, with Horse Racing Now, you know, and, and you've actually done tried to do something. Yeah, so 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 my my vision on it is is that it's very difficult for people to watch, and we created an app, and Horse Races Now is a iPhone and an Android app, and we've got eight hundred thousand downloads on the app, and uh, you can we've tried to make it easy for people to watch, but then the industry won't give us the content, won't let us have the video, and um, they won't let us take bets. But um, I've always believed if you open the sport up that people will come back to it. I think, I think especially young people don't know much about it because they can't watch. I mean, here's my first complaint. If, if I'm 17, 18, 19 years old and I want to watch a horse race, I've got to either download a wagering app, which if I'm not old enough, I can't, I can't do it. If I'm in the wrong state, I can't do it. If I don't have a credit card, I can't do it. So those three barriers right there stop people from opening an ADW. And maybe maybe people don't maybe a young kid doesn't doesn't want to wager. He just wants to watch. Can't do it. Um, satellite TV is wonderful, and you can get racing on Dish and Direct TV. However, do you know the percentages of Americans that have satellite TV? It's like ten percent. So you've already in 330 or 350 million Americans were lucky if 10% have a satellite dish. And even if they did, they've got to subscribe. And so we've basically closed the sport off and, and put these barriers in to keep people from watching, which is ridiculous. But until the powers above decide that they're going to open it up, and actually allow people to easily watch horse racing, the industry is going to continue to shrink. Yeah, you know, it's and interesting that, during the pandemic, with a little bit more exposure on both Fox and NBC Sports, a, a lot of people have watched it, but now as we were getting back to normal, that time on the air is shrinking, and I wonder if we're going to lose what we gained. Well, I think Naira has the right approach by putting it on Fox. I think I think David O'Rourke has made a good move there, and I think he sees what – and I've discussed these things with him. I think he sees that, that more exposure is better. But that's only one racetrack. At one point, you know, there was almost 500 racetracks in the United States that could – you know, have, that have what I call licensed racing. Only 180 of those – of those uh, 500 tracks actually have video accessible. Really? And so that means there's 320 racetracks that you can't watch because they don't have access to stream their video. 
And so those tracks aren't going to survive if they can't stream and simulcast or or um, uh, advance deposit wager their product, and thus they're going to die. And so there's um, there's some some uh, issues that that need to resolve. There needs to be cheaper streaming services, which are coming. I think there's a few companies that are out there that are going to change the landscape of the streaming. You know, and honestly, why is a horse trainer even worried about this? Most horse trainers don't worry about all this, but it is none of it matters what we do if we don't fix these kind of things. Well, you know, we've both been in the industry long enough that we realized that the tracks that didn't adopt, adapt, rather, uh, they've shrunk. They've disappeared, you know, from Atlantic City and Garden State and Rockingham and all those places that just didn't quite get the idea. And and when there's fewer tracks, there's fewer venues to race and fewer opportunities for people to train and have horses. So it, it does affect us all. Well, and a lot a lot of venues are being sub, subsidized by alternate forms of wagering, and you know even Kentucky, half the purse structure or more is coming from from uh, historical racing, and then you've got other states, whether it's Pennsylvania or Iowa, where the wagering is coming from their attached casino. At some point, the sport's got to stand on its own two feet, and it's got to deliver its sport in a proper, easy manner, and. Um, there's, like I said, a lot of work to do. Um, might be a pro- I'd love to own a racetrack. I think if I owned a racetrack, I, I would turn it on its head and do a lot of things different. But um, it takes funding to do that, and we're actually looking at some of that stuff. You know, I, I think one of the things that might change the industry is if horsemen owned the track. And, you know, the, like the guys at Mammoth, you know, kind of turned that situation around uh, and – it wouldn't be a bad thing, uh, but you you're involved in so much. How how do you, how do you have the energy? Uh, the energy's not not a problem. I mean, uh, the people that I mean, um, I've studied delegate. I mean, you got to be a master delegator. You've got to have really good people to help you. You've got to be aware of everything happening. I'm a I'm a list guy. Um, I make lists. I delegate the things that I can pass to others that I know that can get take, get it taken care of. Um, you, know, you pay those people well as long as they get it taken care of. And then if somebody doesn't take care of business or the details, then you find somebody else to do it. And um, it's a CEO, basically, and, and um, I enjoy it. I really do. Uh, Mondays and Tuesdays are our what I'd call task list days. I mean, I, we, we trained 100 babies here at, at Silverleaf and this morning and I finished up went through all the horses with all the staff and everybody's got all their ducks in a row and then in the afternoon we'll go over tasks list on whether it's Magdalena Farm in Kentucky or Silverleaf Hills here in here in Ocala um, we'll hit the task list Who, who's, who's changing all on the tractor does somebody somebody get that tire fixed on <laughs> is it um, what about the fence line there's all kinds of stuff, and it, most of it's easy. Usually, as long as somebody knows they're supposed to take care of it, they get it done. And, and then, then you're back down to Gulfstream for the races, or to Turfway. You know, yeah, um, so a lot of miles, right? Of, no, this time of year I spend it between Silverleaf and Gulfstream, 
And um, those are two great spots. The weather's fantastic, as you know, down here. Great. And uh, I'll bounce between the two. I flew to Houston weekend before last, and then I was at Tampa Saturday. But those those are easy trips. And um, then as spring comes, I'll, um, you know, weekends, and I got the, some Saturday Warriors, you know, the Swiss Skydivers and the Envoutants and some other really good horses in the barn that are going to take me traveling for weekends, which same thing. I mean, we're, we're hubbed pretty good here. I can go to the Orlando airport and be in new Orleans in an hour. Um, I love to own an airplane, but I'm not there yet. And I'm not, I'm sure as hell not going to fly it. <laughs> so. Yeah. But, and you, you have family though, back in Lexington and I know you always find time to get back there. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about your family. Well, um, my, my wife and daughter are with me now. My oldest daughter's in uh, in college in at Otterbein in Columbus, Ohio. It's basically a um, small liberal arts school. And um, my mother passed away, and my father's still kicking around Lexington. So they're uh, he's over there trying to make ends meet. And um, but I go into Lex in and out of Lexington a lot. Um, probably more for the Keeneland meet and then the sales. And then we do keep Magdalene over there, which is our mares and, and uh, some layups. And then, but actually my home's in Louisville and my wife is from Louisville. And um, they're actually more of the kids are in Louisville actually, instead of Lexington. So, um, but I love both cities. I'm from Lexington originally, but I'm going to tell you that I, I, I live in Louisville and, and, and love it over there. It's a lot of, really nice people and places it's a great town no i had an office there for many years and you know, so i got to spend protracted time there and it is it's a it's a great lexington's a great place but louisville's kind of just a, a neat place it really is now don't get me wrong though i don't wear a card oh no I, I know you can't talk, talk <laughs> lexington means second child she, um, my wife is a Louisville University of Louisville grad. She's a neonatal intensive care nurse, okay. um, infant babies, and um, what, she's what an intense job that, that is, huh? Yeah, she's fantastic at it too. She's got multiple degrees from U of L, and she um, she when she she wears red even during the UK games. So um, I've not turned her uh, how, how quite that? into a UK fan. I'll get her to a game on occasion when, when they're, of course, when we can. But um, and I actually pull for U of L myself. I, th- I think that uh, Chris Mack's a fantastic coach. Switching to basketball, man, this cat's really bad. <laughs> it's uh, hard to take. This has been a tough season. Yeah, I mean, I've never been a fan of the one and done. I, I don't think it's—I don't think it's really what college basketball was set out to be. And I hope um, Cal comes to his senses and starts putting a program together where there's some kids that stayed three or four years and that they're not in such a hurry in life. And um, I think college is a great experience, but man, it, the way the program's going right now, it's not not going too good. So I think they might need to readdress what they're doing. Now, tell us about tell us about the farm in Ocala because that's new the, the training center. Yeah, so um, this is um, you know like anything you analyze situations. Here was my math a few years ago. I had horses at Payson Park, which is a wonderful place, 
and it is extremely expensive. And then I had a group of horses with Barry Burkelhammer here in Ocala and also with Dominic Brennan. And what I decided to do was to consolidate all of it. And instead of paying Payson stall rent all winter and instead of farming out my young horses to other guys, I decided to find a location where I could bring it all together where my older horses were in one location and I, I could watch my younger horses at the same time. And um, this property came up on the market and um, I'm fortunate that, that uh, Ike Rainey, who owned the property, it was originally the Padua or it was actually Silverleaf. Then it was Padua. And then, uh, and then he sold it to Ike Rainey and then Ike, uh, worked a deal with me to reopen the training center, and uh, we've re- renamed it Silverleaf Hills. It's a beautiful property. We have a, enough space for 121 horses, and um, we've got everything consolidated with the exception of, of the Gulfstream stable, which has got 42 in it. Um, everything else is here, and um, it's this a slice of heaven. I mean, I got lucky because Ike Rainey's worked with me on the financing on the property and um we've got a long-term deal set in place now and it's um it's a great spot i I think i'm gonna probably my intention is to train another 12 years and at the end of that 12 years i'd like to think that i've got a good portion of this paid off and um, it's better than paying rent which i'm averse to i just cannot stand paying rent anywhere whether whether it's a place to stay or, or a farm. So, um, as a business deal, it's, it's, it's a better long-term plan. And, um, we're trying to gain equity as opposed to, like I said, paying rent. You know, also, I guess when, because you pick out a lot of the horses that you train, it must be pretty nice to, you know, kind of go from the cradle to the starting gate with them. Well, that's where you learn about them. Um, I think when when I buy a horse, and I've, you know, I've been doing it this way for years, I get to develop them. And when I do that, then I get to figure out, okay, what worked and what didn't work. And if this horse was made this way, then was it a sprinter? And was that one a turf horse? And so you get to see the whole process and what went right and what went wrong, which I do think over time I've gotten better at doing what I do because I I get to see – what's successful and what's unsuccessful and um and to be able to watch them every day you learn which one you know who got the shin and which one's um you know which one looks like it can go further and does things easier um and it, my responsibility is to invest people's money in horses and then take their horse and take it to the, as high a level as, as it's capable of going and of course, it's a, it is a game of failure. Probably, what is it? Um, three or four percent of thoroughbreds are stakes winners, right. so it's ninety six net ninety seven percent failure rate. And um, we pretty much beat those numbers to death. I mean, if we can come up with twenty percent of our young horses being stake horses, whether it's win, uh, stakes winners or even stakes placed, um, we hit those numbers pretty consistent. Maybe not always twenty, sometimes fifteen. But um, but we're at least beating the the industry average. You know, and you've done it for so many years. 
you know, when I, you know, getting ready for the show, I went back and I looked at, you know, you, some of the things that you've done. You've been consistent year in and year out for what thirty years now. I had a guy, yeah, you know, um, and I don't think too much about it other than I had a guy named Roy Monroe, and he's passed away, and and another guy named Ray Cockrell, and both of them trusted me when I was a young trainer. And they said, I told them, I said, look, we need better horses. I can't beat Wayne Lucas and Woody Stevens and all Charlie Whittingham. I can't beat these guys unless you let me get better. And um, so I convinced them, them to let me go to the sale because we got to get better horses. And they'd give me a modest budget. Roy would give me $6,000 one season. Ray'd give me, oh, I could go to twenty. And then Roy gave me a little more money. And then Ray gave me a little more money. And we partnered on horses sometimes. And we came up with Tejano Run, who was second in the Kentucky Derby. I paid twenty grand for that horse. And then we had another horse, car dealer for Ray. And then I had a horse named Prince Arch, who was the first grade one winner by Arch. Paid thirty-seven for him. I went over budget and got mad at me. <laughs> um, and then people, other people, started calling and saying, "Hey, well, why, why not buy some for me?" And I said, "Well, look, I'm glad to. What's your budget?" And I try to fit whatever someone's budget is. Good horses come from everywhere, and you just don't really know. Um, and I, I'm not what I'd call a pedigree snob, but I am a snob when it comes to the horse has to be made right. They don't have to be by a fancy stallion or out of a fancy mare, but they must be made right. And um, like Einstein, he's one of my favorite buys ever. I bought him in Brazil at a horse sale in Sao Paulo that probably I was probably the only American that's ever attended that sale. He came back here and made three million dollars racing and gave forty five grand for it. And, and, and what is a great looking beast. horse he is? Oh, he, he was a beast, and you could yeah. see that when he was a yearling. He was a little ganglier. He was a young beast, but he was a big, strong horse then. So, I mean, you know, if I do that and I do it well, and people say, "Okay, well, I did that," and just keep doing it again, right? And um, I haven't changed my methodology very much over the 30 years i am getting a little bit more money which i enjoy and sometimes that's even a curse because you buy you spend a lot of money and it doesn't work out then you feel horrible when it doesn't work out so um you know just put one foot in front of the other and keep at it it's it's a great it's grand fun it really is it beats working for a living right yeah it's a lot of fun it's pressure sometimes and you get people to get upset when they lose, but you know that's okay. You got to what's the old saying? Um, win like you're used to it, and lose like you like it. Right. And I tell new clients that lose like you like it, win like you're used to it. Don't get too high, too low. Just keep it in the middle, and you know when you get a good horse, it'll help you forget about the ones that didn't work out. And let my old friend Leroy Jolly used to say: make sure you're wearing long pants because. This is a game for long pants only, you know. Yeah, there's uh, no doubt. Hey, Kent, I'm I'm going to let you go. Uh, hopefully, I get up there to Ocala to see the farm in the next couple of months and uh, spend some time with you. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time, you know, to spend with us today. I know how busy you are, and uh, continue good success. And uh, 
we'll, we'll see you down here in Florida. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining us. Folks, we're going to take a brief break, and then we're going to come right back with Kim Weir from TRF, one of my favorite organizations in the horse industry. And we'll take a couple of messages from our sponsors and be right back. Does your horse need a Florida vacation? Do they need to have some time away from the track, a chance to put their head down in the grass? This is the place. Valley Rose Farm, located just minutes from Palm Meadows Palm Beach Downs and Gulf Stream. There are grassy paddocks, large 12 by 12 matted stools, with fans auto fly and security system polyfoam ring and more, care is provided by a professional team that have more than 50 years of race track experience. Visit Bally Rose in person, or online at www.ballyrose.com, or call 56177452000. My name is Peter Thomas Fornital. I'm an avid horse player, founder of the In The Money Media Network, and a proud supporter of the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. The TRF is the oldest and largest charity in the United States that's dedicated to saving thoroughbred racehorses when their racing days are done. For 35 years, the TRF has not only been saving horses, but human lives as well through their nationally recognized Second Chances program. I encourage you to learn more about the TRF at their website, trfinc.org. And if you're inspired to give a gift, take a look at our In the Money link, trfinc.org slash players. And now back to the show. Here's Les. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, the second part of our show has one of my favorite people in the horse industry joining us, uh, Kim Weir from the TRF. Welcome aboard, Kim. It is so nice to hear your voice, and it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Same here, and uh, how are things in Saratoga this cold Monday? It is It is definitely winter here. Uh, we had a very snowy day yesterday, which was actually lots of fun. I went for a big walk in it, and um, we are, we're looking forward to some single digits this week. So we're, we're, not, taking, we're not joking about our winter this year. <laughs> it's nice I, to be indoors on a day like today. <laughs> I, I, I won't tease you and say that it's 80 degrees here in sunny South Florida. I, w- I won't tell you that. Okay, uh, okay. That, thank you for not telling me that. <laughs> hey, Kim, the, re- the reason I wanted to have you on the show is uh, – First of all, a lot of people don't know about TRF, which is kind of strange because it's, I guess, the oldest of the or most established of the thoroughbred retirement programs in the country. And so I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and the Second Chance program and give folks an overview. Oh, I love that. It's always a pleasure, and and I'm delighted to share our story. And um, a friend of mine said, well, Kim, aren't you glad that not everybody knows about the TRS because if they did, what would you do with yourself? <laughs> so fortunately, I'm hopeful that maybe there are some ears, some hearts, some minds to listen in to us today that, that maybe aren't as familiar and um, glad to glad to, to change that. Um, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation is, as, as you indicated, um, we have the, the honor, and it's a huge honor to, to just be the oldest aftercare organization um, in the United States, and that we were founded back in 1983 um, by extraordinary individuals who were involved and committed to the thoroughbred racing industry. So we, we come from the industry, and we were formed as a, as a tribute to these beautiful animals that we love, but it, it just was more a sign of the times. That would be probably the conversation for another day is 
what had changed in the industry at that point that led folks to think, you know, we need to change our plans for how we're going to take care of these animals when their careers are over. So indeed, it was folks that people um, today, we celebrate them every day. It's Penny Chenery was on our board, Mary Lou Whitney, um, Eleanor Pena, just extraordinary women. There were an awful lot of women involved in our board. Um, and they founded us back in 83 with this simple mission. It is to save thoroughbred racehorses who are no longer able to compete on the race course from possible neglect, abuse, and slaughter. A very sobering mission, a very simple mission, and it's not changed a word in over 35 years. Um, so that all happened up here in New York. Um, and as, as, a, as I'm now a sort of new New Yorker living in Saratoga Springs, I'm honored that I can tell my New York neighbors that this is something New Yorkers can be proud of, um, that we were formed here. A lot of the original fundraising was happening right on the backstretch or the apron at Belmont, and um, that is where we began. So that's that's the first part of our story, um, and hopefully that at least sets the stage for what we what we've grown to since then. But you're not just in New York. Tell us about the, the very well. Let's let's do that. But let's also talk about the Second Chance program because that's really the point of difference. You're absolutely right, and I, I thank you for for being for being such a good um, uh, coach through the conversation. Because while I love to kind of leave folks thinking, "All right, here they were; these amazing individuals were deciding to take care of these horses." The thing they they didn't necessarily have uh, in their mind, or we don't know what was in their mind, was where exactly they were going to put all of these horses as they gave them retirement homes after their racing careers were done. That's where the magic really did happen. Um, and that was all something that was just, you never know where a conversation will lead you, just like this conversation today left. You never know who's listening to us who may just be inspired, because that is how the TRF Second Chances program started. It was a chance encounter between these amazing thoroughbred owners. Um, I always like to think it might have happened on someone's porch on Union Avenue. That's like my, my Hollywood version of the story. Well, <laughs> that's very story, romantic. I mean, that, it is, that's right out it of is. a movie. But. It is, and it could have happened because Lord knows that's a, that's a thing that happens up here when we actually get to have people. Um, so, in fact, what happened was a bunch of owners, these incredibly dedicated individuals, were, were chatting, and um, the women of the TRF, especially our executive director, whose name was Monique Kohler, an extraordinary woman, later given an Eclipse Award for her work in forming the TRF, she met another thoroughbred owner named um, Senator Howard Nolan, who was a state senator here in New York and is still an active in the thoroughbred uh, breeding industry. He was a state senator representing the Albany Greater Capital Region and um, just so happened to know that the prison down at Wallkill was just about to buy a farm, which would become uh, buffer land between Wallkill, which is an old, old prison, like formed, founded back in the Roosevelt era, like in the 30s. Um, but that, that prison needed to buy some buffer land between itself and a new maximum security prison that was being built in those days. It's called Shawangunk. So he happened to know this. This is like where you just never know what happens when people talk to each other. And he said, you know, they're buying this farm down at Wallkill. I wonder if you could put any of the horses there. Well, sure enough, through extraordinary um, coincidence, serendipity, karma, whatever you want to call it, that is how we really got this organization off the ground. It was, in fact, at the Wallkill Correctional Facility that the very first horse that ever entered the TRF herd 
stepped off a van in 1984. It was August of 1984 that Promised Road got off the van at the prison and thus began our prison program, which we call the TRF Second Chances Program. And that that is what differentiates us in the world, and that we do take care of the horses first and foremost, but we found a way to put them into a second career, essentially as a teacher, where they teach men and now women uh, vocational skills and all the things that all of us who love horses so much know that they teach us. They teach us hard work, responsibility, trust, confidence, empathy, how to get up on really cold mornings. <laughs> um, and sure enough, that is what we've been now doing. That program is what defines us. And it is such a pleasure to talk about it um, because it has grown and grown over these 35 years. You know, you, you mentioned getting up in the morning. For a lot of the folks in the program, it gives them a reason that they haven't had for many, many years. That and, is so true. So true. And why don't I, I know at the three facilities, it, they're, they're men. And then here in Florida, it's women, right? That's right. Well, and where we've grown over these years, decades, is that while we started in New York with the men's prison in Wallkill, we then expanded to Kentucky and then to Florida. These are, of course, the big breeding racing states of our country. We have continued to grow in that the TRF Second Chances Program currently operates in seven states across the United States. And uh, in fact, the Florida program, and I know we're very focused on, on Florida this year and um, this conversation with you, because that is our one and only, so far, uh, women's prison program. And we will be celebrating its 20 years of operation this year. So it is really something special. And of course, Les, it's where you and I first met for that uh, fateful first day um, back in March of last year. Well, tell us about the 20-year anniversary and maybe a little bit about some of the, the women that are in the program and what they've done and how, how they've grown. Oh, my gosh. Well, this is this is where um, I am so excited about this year that we're dedicating to, to telling this story. Because when I think about 20 years of anything, and we can all look at our lives and think of anything that's been around that long, um, it's, it's a testament to an awful lot of people. The program that is operating for us in Ocala, I should point out that it is at the Lowell uh, Correctional Institution. That is the women's prison in Ocala. And our farm is right there across the street from the, from the women's, um, women's prison. Um, it has been over 20 years because of countless, countless incredible individuals. And so the number of people in Florida and across Florida and across the industry who've made that program possible is Perhaps the most exciting thing about celebrating the anniversary is, is we will have time over the course of the year to, to really call out these heroes that, that got that program off the ground and kept it going. Um, the, one of the key players in this long list of amazing people is a gentleman named Mr. John Evans, and I'm hoping that he's blushing as I say his name right now. He is our farm manager and the TRF Second Chances instructor at Lowell, and he's been there for 16 of the 20 years. So... If you just think about what an impact one person can have, um, this man, who's an extraordinary horseman, he has his own credentials in terms of training and breeding and being an amazing horseman, but he has been changing the lives of these women in this program for 16 years. And without a doubt, as much as I love every single one of our programs and can tell them tell stories about all of them, we have more 
examples of successful transitions into the horse industry out of this Ocala program than any other program in our system at this point. Um, And that has a lot to do with our partners at the Florida Thoroughbred Breeders and Owners Association, another incredible hero in our story. But over the course of the year, I promise, we'll be telling the individual stories of um, women who've come from this program. And just to give you one is that just last August, um, in Ocala Style Magazine, there was a beautiful um, color photos um, feature of a young woman in uh, Lauren Bondi who re- graduated from the program and has gone on to work um, in the training of thoroughbreds. So th- we find that the women in that program, and because of the number of job opportunities in the horse industry in and around Ocala, is a perfect combination for this this truly second chances program because the horses we know once they land in our farm they're happy as could be for the rest of their lives they've got their second chance to be happy health healthy contributors but when the women leave the program is when you know the really the magic truly comes to life although you last i would have i put you on the spot and say you were there with me at the program in march and i know that you were moved by some of the things you heard those women say and they weren't you know what it it was it was actually a moving experience and the listeners that know me know that I'm not the most sentimental type of guy, but <laughs> but this, this was this was exceptional. And I I've got to tell you, you know, part of success in anything is picking the right personnel. And I think sure. Mr. Evans, John Evans over there, is exactly the right guy. You know, you guys yeah. did a wonderful job 16 years ago finding him, and you know, he's perfect for those those folks. And, uh, I think the board, when they selected him, deserved a lot of credit. Yes. I'm awfully grateful. I'm grateful for him for sure. (laughs) And I'm grateful for you because you did come and I do know, I won't, I won't embarrass you on on your own radio show, but I know you were moved. You just told me you were and what you've demonstrated by staying involved and interested and giving me an opportunity like today is such a gift, Wes. So thank you. That is, that is the greatest gift of all is to share the story. Well, no, uh, it's our pleasure. Now, you have something new coming up, and I know you're not making a formal announcement for another couple of weeks, but uh, you want to share anything about that? Oh, you know I do. You know I do. (laughs) So, yes, so this year is a big year for us in Florida because later in the fall we will celebrate this 20th anniversary, and we will make much of that, and your listeners can stay tuned. But much, much sooner, like perhaps as soon as two weeks from now, we will be doing something that does not happen every day at the TRF, and that will be the announcement of a brand-new program. And so we just are beside ourselves with anticipation. Um, this will be a groundbreaking uh, approach. It will still be our TRF Second Chances program where we give the horses a second chance as a teacher and we give the humans a second chance for their future. But here's the best part of all is that this will be a program working with young men between the ages of 12 to 18 so that the impact that we can have through our horses, um, taking care of our horses first, but giving our horses this chance to change the trajectory of the lives of these young men is just something that we will be making much of. Um, we are not quite at the point where we can tell your listeners, like, where to look or when to tune in, but just know that it's this month um, and it's coming soon um, and very, very exciting. Now, we have a show scheduled for February 22nd, and I'm going to put the pressure on you and ask (laughs) that you join us because I think that'll be 
right around announcement time. Oh, my gosh. We will can be, can, absolutely. Can I count can on we, you for that? You have got me last. You just say when, when and I am here, and I can't wait okay. to share all the juicy details. <laughs> Great. Folks, and if, if, if you're not familiar with the TRF, and you, you've, got to, you've got to get involved, uh, even if you're just a spectator to what they're doing, it is so different than the traditional thoroughbred retirement program. Uh, and Tim, Kim, what's the, uh, the website? Yes, well, you, that was such a beautiful uh, request. Thank you, Les. The, the website is trfinc.org. So we, we love for folks to visit us there. We're also very active on Facebook and Instagram, and we always have tons of pictures of these beautiful creatures. And while we so, we so appreciate these chances to tell our story and this unique double bottom line that we have with the horses and the humans, we are also incredibly proud to be a part of the larger aftercare community ecosystem. Um, all of our friends who do retraining and rehoming um, are, are the heroes working every day with these creatures to give them second careers when they can do something athletic. Our focus is simply those that cannot pursue that second athletic career. So we just want to make sure they are safe and that they have their own purpose in life. So thank you for letting me tell the story this morning, Les. You know, and, and just to sum up, this is the double nobody gets left behind story. Yeah. You know, the, the, peop- the people that you're touching, th- they normally would be left behind, many of them. And yeah. same, and equally as tragic are some of the horses that nobody else would touch and take. So the the organization does great work. We're 150% behind you guys and hope that you're on the show with us on a regular basis and uh, wish you all the best of luck and uh, want you to stay warm in <laughs> Saratoga. Uh, and, and when I'm up there with you in August and it's 88 degrees and 100% humidity and I'm complaining about the heat, say, Salzman, you're lucky you didn't come here in February. Well, I will be lucky to have you on my porch, my friend, and I can't wait till you come up to visit. I'm, I'm looking thank forward you. to it. Thanks again, Kim, and thank you all for joining us today on the Thoroughbred Post. I'm Les Salzman. We'll see you real soon on the BBC, BBS Radio Network. The finest care for your horses in a quite relaxed natural environment. That's what you will get at Bally Rose Farm in South Florida. Customized feed, therapy and turnout programs ensure that every horse gets the attention they need and deserve. With more than 35 years of professional experience, the Bally Rose team works hard for you and your horses and is known for its client communications. Turnouts, breeding stock or layup, Bally Rose is your best choice. Visit ballyrose.com or call 56177452000. My name is Peter Thomas Fornital. I'm an avid horse player, founder of the In The Money Media Network, and a proud supporter of the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. The TRF is the oldest and largest charity in the United States that's dedicated to saving thoroughbred racehorses when their racing days are done. For 35 years, the TRF has not only been saving horses, but human lives as well through their nationally recognized Second Chances program. I encourage you to learn more about the TRF at their website, trfinc.org. And if you're inspired to give a gift, take a look at our In the Money link, trfinc.org slash players.